satisfied in him and him alone. Okay, so tonight we come to the end of our series that we've been in for the last, I think this is the eighth week, uh, called Why Is This Even In Here? And in this series we have been looking at passages in the Bible that are strange, weird, hard to understand. If we're honest, there are places that we look at in the Bible that at first glance, second glance, hundredth glance even, do not make any sense whatsoever. Places that we would normally just skip over. And, and if you've been in church long enough, you know that there are other places in the Bible that we camp out on. Good places. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't go to those places. But oftentimes, those places are the only ones that we focus on at the neglect of other places that are more difficult to understand. These passages that make us say, why is this even in here? Um, And in this series, we have covered uh, a lot of great stories, interesting stories. Uh, Last week, we talked about Jabba the Hutt being killed by a lefty, while Shamgar goes Chuck Norris on the Philistines. We talked about Elisha and the bear curse, the one thing that I wish I would have learned in seminary. They didn't teach me that one, how to sick bears on uh, haters, but maybe that was probably a good thing that I wasn't taught that. Uh, We looked at Genesis chapter 15, which talks about God's very weird, bloody covenant with Abram. Uh, We looked at the story where Moses has his life saved by his wife um, in an act of circumcision that ended up uh, leading him into uh, Egypt. We talked about Ezekiel and his interactive theater art piece that lasted uh, for a long time where he ends up eating Ezekiel 4-9 bread uh, over a burning fire of fresh poop. Then there was that time in Joshua chapter 10 where the sun literally stood still and God pushed the pause button on the universe. Um, we looked at a super boring genealogy in Genesis chapter 10, a place that was listed on um, a site called the six most useless passages in the Bible and why you should avoid them. And hopefully what we found is that it was not useless at all, that there is so much wealth uh, that is there. And we began this series by looking at uh, many of the crazy laws in Leviticus, laws that to our modern ears seem very weird. And uh, this is the end of the series. Next week, um, I'll be out of town with the family, and Daryl will be preaching, so you don't want to miss that. And then when I get back in, in a couple of weeks, we'll be starting a brand new series on relationships. But I think we've saved the best for last in this series. Um, the final story that we'll be covering is, in my humble opinion, the most challenging passage to me personally. Um, because it's, it's really hard to wrap our heads around it. Um, this is a story that, again, for me personally, really stretches me. Uh, the story that we'll be looking at is one in which the Bible meets the X-Files. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever watched the show, The X-Files. Okay, one of us, maybe two. <laughs> okay, I don't blame you. It's, uh, it's been a while. The show ran from 1993 to 2002 on uh, the Fox network and was one of the longest running shows uh, of their network's history, over 200 episodes. And this show became kind of a, a pop culture phenomenon. 
it set up a genre of competing shows. And by the end of that show, it was at the time the longest running sci-fi show in U.S. television history. That was later beaten by a couple of other shows, um, but at the time it was the longest running. This show follows the investigations of two FBI agents, uh, Fox Mulder and Dana Scully. And these two FBI agents are tasked with investigating cases known as the X-Files. These are cases that involve paranormal activity, um, supernatural events, aliens, and other strange and seemingly impossible scenarios. Underlying the, uh, the whole show is the interplay of these two main characters. We have Mulder, who is a believer in paranormal activity. He uh, believes in aliens. He believes in the divine. He doesn't deny the spiritual. He even believes that his own younger sister was, in her childhood, abducted by aliens. Spoiler alert, she was. Then you have Scully. Scully is the skeptic. Scully approaches everything much differently because she's a medical doctor. And everything to her comes down to science. Everything has a rational, logical, natural explanation. And so her job is to kind of keep him in check. To give real life explanations for the seemingly otherworldly things that they encounter. So each of these agents is coming at these cases from a very different uh, perspective. And and they play off of each other in order to solve the mysteries that are presented in in every case. And they eventually grow and learn from each other and begin to adopt each other's philosophies as, as they tackle these cases. And together they fight against the secret agenda of the government, and the, uh, they, they discover that the government is conspiring to hide the truth about extraterrestrial life from the people. And so together they chase down every conspiracy theory to its bitter end. So if you haven't watched the show, which is most of you, um, I'm going to spoil it for you. And I don't feel that bad. You've had 27 years to watch it, so my apologies. But Mulder and Scully eventually learn the truth regarding an alien invasion on Earth. They learn that there is a secret and powerful group of men known as the Syndicate. And the Syndicate are the liaisons between the aliens and the human race. And what they learn is that the aliens are planning on infecting the human race with a virus called black oil. And black oil is going to turn the human race into their slaves. So the syndicate have brokered a deal with the aliens in order to save themselves. At the expense of everyone else, of course. Everyone else is going to die. The syndicate is saving themselves. And part of the deal that they broker is developing an alien-human hybrid that will be immune to the effects of the black oil. And this superhuman race, presumably, is going to rule the universe. The syndicate is also working on a vaccine. And uh, when they develop this vaccine, their plan is to uh, pull a fast one on the aliens. Because there's another group of aliens that's found out about. And these 
other group of aliens are working against the first group of aliens to make sure that they don't colonize the, the world. You might call these the woke aliens. Okay? The woke aliens are fighting against the colonization of the human race. And so eventually, uh, the woke aliens, along with the human rebels, destroy the syndicate. Uh, but by this time, there is already a group of aliens that have infiltrated the human race and, and mixed together. And they dispatch these human alien hybrids called the super soldiers. The super soldiers look human but they are biologically alien. And eventually, these super soldiers began to take over positions in the government, reaching the highest places in the government, which forces Mulder and Scully to go into hiding as they realize their own government is working against them. I'm almost done. Follow me here. (laughs) Things get fuzzy after that. Um, Mulder gets Scully pregnant But viewers have learned that by that point, somehow Mulder has alien DNA within him. So this baby that they are going to have is going to be part alien. That baby would grow up and be killed, but then resurrected and becomes Salvatore Mundi, the savior of the world. That is a lot, is it not? Seems far-fetched, does it not? Crazy. It is so sci-fi. You have half-human, half-superhuman beings. Supernatural. You have super-soldiers. You have a hybrid who is killed and then resurrected and then becomes the savior of the world. Ridiculous, right? Where do they come up with this stuff? Maybe the Bible. Because that's exactly what we're going to talk about today in what is, my opinion, the strangest passage in the Bible. So, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 8. Um, If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, Josh will put up the verses on the screen behind me. But turn in your Bibles or navigate on your devices to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, And they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So if I were putting together a list of passages to purposely avoid 
this would probably be at the top of the list. It's incredibly confusing. And I will say right here from the outset that I still don't know and maybe never will know for sure definite answers to the questions that come up when we read this text. There are a lot of really smart scholars, way smarter than me, over the course of centuries that have differing views on this. Far be it from me to pretend that I have it all figured out. Definite answers I do not have. Opinion? Yes. Views, which are based on research? Yes. But definite answers? Not as many as I would like. So I'll go ahead and speak and spoil part of what is coming. This is one of the most hotly debated passages in the Bible, and it all comes down to one question. Who are the Nephilim? And here's my answer. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know for sure. I'm going to tell you what I think, but I'm also going to tell you I could be wrong. And that's okay. And if you hold one of the other views that's supported, uh, I will not ask you to no longer come to our church. This is one of those places that uh, a little bit of disagreement is okay, as long as the view that you have is based on a faithful reading of the scriptures. But not knowing for sure the identity of these figures does not prevent us from asking the more relevant question to us, and that is... Why is this even in here? And hopefully, as we examine that question and understand why this was written, we'll learn that it's, it's okay for us to not know for sure the, ident- the identity of these, uh, these things. So, uh, for the final time, let us begin by uh, giving our quiz. Now, if you're new with us, we have started each one of these uh, sermons with the four principles of biblical interpretation. These are, are, are principles that we can apply not only to this passage, but to every single passage of Scripture. Uh, principles that will help us to understand what we are reading every single time we open the Word. So, What are the four principles of scriptural interpretation? Yes, sir, you in the front. Genre matters and scripture. Thank you. That's two of them. Genre matters. Represented in scripture are a wide number of literary genres poetry, narrative, law, letter. And each of those must be read as the literary genre demands. We can't read poetry the same way that we read narrative. We have to read it as the author intends us to read it. Eli also noted that scripture interprets scripture. Anytime we come to a passage, we must put it in its immediate context, in the verses that surround it, in the context of the book in which it's written, and ultimately in the context of the entire story of scripture. When something doesn't make sense to us, we interpret it with the things that do make sense to us Revealed to us by God. So, genre matters and scripture interprets scripture. There are two more. What are those? Yes, ma'am. 
the Bible must be read as an ancient document. And what we mean by that is to say that every single text in Scripture was written by an ancient author at an ancient time in an ancient place to an ancient people. And we have to first understand that before we can extrapolate from it the eternal principles that apply to us. That is not to say that the Bible is only an ancient document. It is an eternal document. But each part was written at a particular time in history. And in order for us to understand it, we must first understand it in its particular time in history. And there's one more. Sir. Excellent. There is a difference between description and prescription. Not every time that the Bible describes something is the Bible also prescribing something. Sometimes it records something without recommending something. Sometimes the Bible says, this happened without saying, go ye do likewise. And so we have to look at each scripture and know, is this recording an event or recommending an action? Is this an event in history or a command to follow? We have to read each passage as it demands to be written. With these scriptural uh, principles of interpretation, hopefully we can begin to apply the Bible as it was intended to be applied. So, with those things firmly in place, let's begin to break down the mystery of Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. So to do this, we're going to kind of split the sermon into two halves. The first half is burning questions. The second half will be more important application. So burning questions and more important application. So let's start with the burning questions. Of course, the burning questions regard the Nephilim. Who or what are the Nephilim? Why aren't they around today? What is preventing the Nephilim from showing back up? What happened to the Nephilim? What are these things? So there's a few different theories on uh, who these figures are. And I'll start with what I believe is the least likely and go to the most likely in my opinion. So this first one is actually held by a number of people. Uh, So let's start with the most unlikely possibility. Josh, you can go ahead and put that meme up there. Aliens. Yes, aliens. This is a picture of a guy named Giorgio Tsoukalos. And it's from a History Channel special called Ancient Aliens. Now, I don't know if you frequent the History Channel, if you ever watch the shows on there, Uh, but it's an ironic name for a channel because, in my estimation, roughly 10% of what's on the History Channel could be described as actual history. The rest is more like the Speculation Channel, or the Conspiracy Theory Channel, or the Rewrite History Channel. And so this crackpot basically got his own special on the History Channel where he attributes many of the uh, events in history to aliens with his signature hand motion and going, aliens. What what was it? Who built the pyramids? Aliens. I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens, right? Now, 
though this is not a common interpretation of this passage, there are actually theologians who claim that the Nephilim were an alien race. Talk about X-Files, right? That these aliens from another planet came and visited Earth and that the Israelites didn't know what aliens were and so they're kind of doing their best to describe what what these things are and, and so they call them sons of God. All right, moral of the story, kids don't do drugs. All right, just take that and live by it. Moving on from that, uh, the second interpretation is that the term sons of God refers to a line of nobility, a line of kings, royalty. These were people of royal rank and that the term daughters of men referred to commoners. And so in this view, it's argued that these sons of God, these these nobles were power thirsty And to feed their hunger for power, the sin that they were committing was the sin of polygamy. And part of the support for this view comes from the fact that in ancient times, kings viewed themselves as being sons of the gods. Now, what might be the problem with this view? Well, for one, nowhere in the Bible uh, is this term used for kings. And pagans wouldn't have used it either to use the term, uh, the sons of God. Um, They would have called kings sons of the gods, not sons of one God. So I don't really think that that's a great option either. So that leaves us with two main interpretations for this passage. And these are the ones that the vast majority of scholars um, are one or the other. I'd estimate probably 90 plus percent of scholars hold one of these two views. So in these two views, the sons of God are either fallen angels who have decided to mate with human women or men from the godly line of Seth who are intermarrying with the pagan descendants of Cain. So let's let's begin with the Sethite interpretation. Places like Genesis chapter 4, 26 seem to uh, support that Seth is connected with faithfulness. Genesis 26, it says, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So here, Seth is connected with bringing about a movement of people who are calling upon the name of the Lord. If we look at Genesis chapter 4 and 5, as it, as it breaks down the events of Seth's life and the life of Cain, uh, you, you might view these places as being a comparison between the line of Seth and the line of Cain. And then Genesis 6 begins by talking about the results of those various lines. There are other places in the Bible that use similar terms uh, to the term sons of God, even though it's not the exact same term. And in in those places, it's always connecting people who are faithful to God. It's always used to describe those who are faithful to God. So in this view, the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 are men from the line of Seth. But that doesn't answer all of our questions. 
there are others that come up when, when we take that view. We, we have to look at the fact that daughters of men is still too vague of a description. And if we just put the term sons of God in a vacuum and say, well, this is about Seth, it still doesn't really answer all the things that we could call daughters of men. More relevant to the mystery, it doesn't account for some kind of super race uh, being a result. After all, it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. So whoever these people were, it says they were mighty men who were men of renown. And so if it's just godly men marrying ungodly women, what you would have would be people. There wouldn't necessarily be some special result from followers of God marrying followers of another God. It would just be people. It also doesn't account for why the Nephilim show up after the flood. Because after the flood, everyone is from the line of Seth. So, still there are unanswered questions uh, that we're left with. And so that leaves us with the final interpretation. And that is that the Nephilim were the result of the intermarrying between fallen angels and human women. Now again... From the outset, I have a hard time with this one. Just like when we looked at Joshua chapter 10 and tried to answer the question, what was really happening here? Did the sun really stand still? Because you guys know me, I'm an intensely logical person, okay? I am someone who is like Scully. I'm a Scully. I'm not a Mulder. I'm I'm not the guy that tries to find something super spiritual behind every bump in the night. Okay? I'm the guy that typically says, there's a very good logical reason for this. And so, this last interpretation irks me because it's like, so X-Files. However, there is support for this view. One of them is that nearly all of Jewish antiquity viewed this as being the proper interpretation. Nearly all of Jewish antiquity viewed this as being a passage describing fallen angels. The Dead Sea Scrolls, First Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, Josephus, many of the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, all of those early scholars believed that this was describing fallen angels. And so this view has the support of early ancient scholarship. We also look at the term in Hebrew, sons of God, which in Hebrew is sons of Elohim. And that is only ever used to describe angels. For example, if you look at the book of Job, this is a story that we're all familiar with, that uh, this was the time where God uh, allowed Satan to test um, the, uh, the man Job. And so, beginning in Job, in Job chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came from among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. This is repeated in, uh, in uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. 
Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And so we have there the same Hebrew term for sons of God. And we have Satan saying, I was just on earth walking around to and fro up and down. We also have New Testament passages that seem to refer to this as well. Uh, In the book of Jude, in verse 6, it says this. Get there. Jude uh, 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. And so this passage connects somehow angels who didn't stay within their own position of authority, and they, like Sodom and Gomorrah, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Finally, we have uh, in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, which says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And so this passage seems to connect Noah and angels sinning and these angels being punished. And so, uh, places like the Bible Project look at this and say, this term is only ever used in Hebrew when talking about angels. Members of the divine council. And so what we have here is actually the fall narrative of the angelic realm. And we compare this with Genesis chapter 3, which we know as the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, the snake told Adam and Eve, eat this forbidden fruit and you can be like Elohim. You can be more than what you are. Now in Genesis chapter 6, the Elohim, the sons of Elohim, are taking the forbidden so that they can be more than what they are. And so what we have here is the inversion of the fall of man. Genesis chapter 19 is also connected to this. Genesis 19 is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what we find in Genesis 19 is two angels that we know for for a fact are angels go into the city of Sodom and they are with Lot and the men of the city call them out and say, bring out those men that are with you so that we can rape them. In this story, what we have is the intended merging of the divine and the human. Further, looking at the Hebrew language, in Genesis chapter 1, there's the term ruach, where God, uh, his, his ruach, his life-giving energy is with man. And what we have here in Genesis chapter 6 is kind of a play on words, where, where he says, um, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Um, and in, then in, in, in chapter 7, 
I'm sorry, in verse 7 it says, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. Go back up to verse 3 where he says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Where he says there, My spirit shall not abide with man forever, he says, My ruach. My life-giving energy will not, it says here in the English, abide in man. But in the Hebrew, that word is Eden, Eden. So literally in English, what he says is, My life-giving spirit will not Eden with man in this way. And so in Genesis chapter 3, what we have is, is mankind making an illegitimate grab at immortality on their own terms. And so again, the Bible Project sees this chapter as another illegitimate grab at eternal life, but this time initiated on the other side from that of the angels. And, and this stuff about 120 years is a clock that begins to tick towards the flood. That, after all, was the interpretation of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, I'm not saying that this interpretation doesn't come with its own issues, right? Angels having sex with humans... Seems very sci-fi, does it not? It's very, very X-Files. Then you have passages like in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus talks about marriage in heaven. And he says, in heaven, men and women will not be given in marriage. They will not marry. And then he says, like the angels. And so that seems to suggest that in heaven, at least, there won't be marriage. But does that necessarily discount uh, the sin on earth? And then we ask the question, well, if the Nephilim are destroyed in the flood, why do they show up in Numbers chapter 13? When the Israelites are going into the promised land and and the the 12 spies are sent out and they they come back with a report, 10 of the spies say to the the, the people of Israel, listen, uh, the land is great, uh, the fruit is dope, but there's a lot of really tall people there. Uh, The Nephilim are there, so we better not. Caleb and Joshua are the only two faithful spies to the Lord that say, no, we absolutely can because God is on our side. So, which is it? Which view is correct? The Sethite view or the fallen angel view? Again, I'm not entirely sure. I am pretty sure that it's either one of those two and not uh, the first two. But I do think that the arguments in favor of the, the, the support of fallen angels are stronger. And it does seem to X-Files for me, personally. Isn't that the entire premise of the show? This hybrid of the natural and the supernatural. Besides the fact that X-Files is talking about aliens and this is talking about angels. And again, I'm scully. This, this answer is crazy, right? But of course, this entire series has been examining places in the Bible that are beyond our wildest imagination, things that seem crazy. Again, we came to a very logical conclusion when we looked at Joshua chapter 10 with the sun standing still that God, being God, has the ability to push pause on the cosmos without there being any negative effect. Scripture tells us that he holds the universe in the palm of his hand. So he is absolutely able to reprogram or manipulate the code however he sees fit. There is nothing 
beyond the power of God. The same, I think, holds true here. It might seem to suggest that it's too far-fetched that fallen angels would reproduce with women. But, in the context of the story of Scripture, and especially in the context of answering the question of why this story is told in the first place, I think it makes sense. And herein lies the reason why I split this sermon into two halves. Burning questions and more important application. Because sometimes we spend all of our efforts trying to decode the Bible. We spend all of our efforts trying to figure out mysteries that there's no way of knowing for sure what exactly is happening. And in doing so, oftentimes we miss the purpose for which these things are actually written. Look with me for a moment at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Take it out of my Bible. It says this. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Here's the point. The point of Scripture is not to debate endless speculation. Let me tell you that from a person who spent too many years in seminary, okay? Seminary students are famous for having endless debates about speculation, okay? There was a joke when I was at Liberty that you were never more than five feet away from a debate, and it's true. You were never more than five feet away from two people who thought they had all of scholarship figured out and often missed the forest for the trees, often missed what the Bible is trying to do to us, for us, and in us. The point of the Bible is to reveal the person and work of God, to bring him glory, and to usher us into a life of obedience to him by faith. That is the point of the Bible. So we can speculate all day whether the Nephilim were Sethites or fallen angels. And I'm not saying that we should never ask the question. It's fair to talk about. But it's also true that that's not really the point. Nor is that why this is even in here. So, let us ask, why is this even in here? And turn to more important application. So, if you're taking notes, here is point number one. 
And again, uh, if this is the first time hearing me preach, and it's now 40 minutes in, and I'm getting to point one, don't be afraid. (laughs) Point number one, the sinfulness of man goes deeper than we ever thought possible. The sinfulness of man goes deeper than we ever thought possible. You see, one of the most pervasive lies in society today is that man is basically good. If you were to go and and take a poll of people on the street, I would assume that most would believe the statement, man is basically good. But all the bad that you see is not nature, uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's nurture. It's not because we're bad, it's because some things have gone bad. Maybe it was the way that you were brought up. Maybe it was things that happened to you. There, there are some things that, that just need to be tweaked. We, we just need to tweak a few things. If, if we learn enough, if we just evolve enough, if, if we just love enough, if we discover our true selves enough, then we'll get back to our true good selves. You see, because we're, we're basically good, right? The Bible tells a much different story. That at the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, man was good. Everything was perfect. But then sin destroyed perfect creation. Sin brought brokenness. And now we are broken. From birth, we are broken and born into sin. David said in the Psalms, Surely I was born in iniquity. From birth, a sinner. So man is not basically good. Romans chapter 3 gives a much different story where it says, All have sinned. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one who seeks God. No one who obeys. Who's included in all? All. So the Bible tells the story that man is not basically good. Man was good. And now sin has broken it. So we have to start here in Genesis chapter 6, kind of with meta-narrative. Who was writing this? When was it written? And why? So this goes back to one of those principles of scriptural interpretation. The Bible must be read as an ancient document. So the author of this is Moses. And he's writing this during the Exodus. As we talked about earlier in this series, during the Exodus, God would meet Moses face to face in a tent. At the tent of meeting, Mo would go into that tent and God would show up and they would talk. I can't imagine how cool that must have been. All right, the Israelites would stand at a distance and every time Moses would go in the tent, it says the people of Israel would look with amazement and wonder as Moses met with God. And so God is communicating all of this truth directly to Moses. And Moses is then able to communicate this to the people. When Moses goes up on the top of Mount Sinai and God comes down in a thunderstorm and he gives Moses the law, Moses brings the law down the mountain to the people. Okay, so Moses is writing these things during that time and telling these things to the people. And so what was it that he was trying to communicate to the original audience, the the, the people of Israel at that time? Well, we have to trace the arc of the narrative that we've seen so far in the book of Genesis. We We have Adam and Eve who are expelled from the garden for disobeying the divine command to be fruitful and multiply his image. 
Instead, they take it upon themselves. Then we get to the next generation, which features Cain, and Cain continues the fall, just like his parents. Like his parents, he takes authority for life into his own hands, and he too is what? Is expelled. He is sent out. So in this narrative that's being built in the first few chapters of Genesis, you have a theme. This theme is the downward slide of man. The downward slide of man as they take authority into their own hands. Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 4, and Genesis chapter 6 all include this. Then it's extended in Genesis chapter 11 that continues the theme in the Tower of Babel where man has now taken it back into their own hands after the flood and they're like, we're going to build our own way to God. And so this is a, a continual theme of the downward slide of man. But in the middle of this, you have Genesis chapter five. Genesis chapter five is genealogy. And at the end of that genealogy, it gets to Noah. And Noah is promised to bring relief. Noah is going to be the one to bring relief. So that's a way, that's that's a clue. The reader reads that and then asks the question, okay, is this where the downward slide ends? And then comes Genesis chapter 6 with an emphatic, nope, it still gets worse. It begins with, man began to multiply. Was that not the command given? By God in Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply. God commands them that. So Moses is intentionally thrown back to the earlier chapter. But now he shows here that man has continued to fail to live out the mission that God intended. Just like Adam and Eve broke that command, it's still being broken and in even worse ways than ever before. Furthermore, when you look at the language, you find more, more throwback. We, we see here that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took wives for themselves. Those are, those are key terms. They saw that they were attractive and they took for themselves. This again is the same language that's used in Genesis chapter 3 when we talk about the fall. Adam and Eve saw that the fruit was good. It was attractive. It's the same Hebrew word. The fruit was tov. And here, the daughters of men are tov. And so, what do they do? They took. Just like Adam and Eve saw that the fruit was tov and they took, here, the sons of God. See, the daughters of men are tov and they take. It's a repeat. It's a redo of the fall. In yet another way. And so what it reveals to us is the truth of humanity is no matter what they achieve, Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel, achieved this huge tower, no matter what they achieve, no matter how many cities they built when we looked at Nimrod, no matter what they grasp for, Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 6, no matter what their pedigree is, where they come from, Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 10 in in the genealogies. The only hope that they ever have for salvation is a covenant with God. Genesis 8 and Genesis 15. That is how the pieces fit together in the meta-narrative. And so Moses speaks these words to the people as they're wandering in the wilderness, hoping to get to the promised land. And he's urging them. 
Put your hope in God. And what do the people do in response? They build a golden calf to Baal and they say, This is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And so they do the very same thing that Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3. They do the very same thing that Cain did in Genesis chapter 4. They do the very same thing that the people do in Genesis chapter 6. They do the the same thing that Nimrod did in, in, in Genesis chapter 11. They said, we take immortality into our own hands and we fashion it the way that we want. We make it look however we desire it to look. We can write our own story. We are the masters of our own destiny. We can be good without God. They fall the same way. And so these people missed the message that Moses was trying to send. You are desperately wicked and you need a savior. Point number two. And there's only two points, okay? There's only two. Man is hopeless without a divine savior. And is hopeless without a divine savior. At the end of the X-Files series, the world is saved by someone who is both human and alien. A hybrid. He's a mixture of the natural and the unnatural. And so he alone bridges the gap between the higher and the lower forms of life. He alone is able to defeat the foe that mankind cannot. Mankind cannot save itself. And most of mankind is ignorant to its slavery in the first place. Most of them don't even know that they are enslaved. But even those who are aware that they're enslaved don't have the power to defeat the supernatural enemy. They're at the mercy of this alien race. They need someone to save them who is one of them, but yet at the same time is one of them. That's the story of Jesus. And that is the point of God telling Moses to tell this story to the people. You see, what this story does is it sets the stage for the incarnation you, you have humans trying to be like God in Genesis chapter 3. Then you have divine beings trying to merge with humanity in Genesis chapter 6. And in Genesis chapter 11, you have the story of men trying to build a gateway to the gods. That's what the word Babel means. Their tower is their foolish attempt at reaching the heavens. Now, of course, they look very silly now because they clearly don't understand at the time that even though they keep building higher and higher, they're not going to get to God. They're just going to reach Earth's atmosphere and they're going to run out of oxygen and they're all going to fall over and die. (laughs) But here they are trying to assert their own power to be divine. And you can imagine what God must be thinking as he looks at them building a tower like, oh my God, oh, these people... (laughs) Then throw in the story from Genesis chapter 19. Again, Sodom and Gomorrah, humanity trying to merge with divinity over and over and over and over, extending to today, right now, in our own hearts, the story remains the same. Man believes he does not need God. 
Man says, I can do it on my own. I can be good enough. I can be strong enough. I can learn enough. I I can evolve enough. I can be powerful enough to defeat darkness in my life. But never once has man been able to save himself, ever. Even when they reproduced with angels and had children who were mighty men of renown, what happened? Wiped out in the flood. Moses writes this story to point the people's eyes forward to the coming Messiah who would be the only one able to save, the Salvatore Mundi, the Savior of the world. You see, salvation would come from the only mixture of the human and divine that was ever meant to be. He would be the only full human who was also fully God. And only he would be the one to turn the hearts of man back to their rightful place, which is to serve the great name instead of trying to make a name for themselves. But you see, the problem is our pride so often prevents us from submitting to that. In the X-Files, Scully and Mulder discover there's this half race of human and half alien called super soldiers. And, and, And these super soldiers, they infiltrate the highest levels of government, eventually taking the most powerful positions available. And what we have in this story, it's beautiful. And we saw this earlier when we looked at the plagues. What we have in this story, again, in its ancient context, is theological shots fired. Okay, this story is a direct shot at the people around. So he's not only talking to the Israelites, he's also communicating truth to the surrounding nations. And this story is shots fired. Here's what I mean. Think about the empire from which they have just been set free, Egypt. Who rules Egypt? Pharaoh. And what do the Egyptians believe about Pharaoh? What does Pharaoh believe about Pharaoh? That he is a son of the gods. That he is both human and divine. This is the prevailing thought of the surrounding nations as they view their kings. The kings are sons of the gods. That is how they describe them. And so it brought to them this certain arrogance and pride about their immortality. They believed that their dynasty would last forever. And the people worshiped them as such. But what does this text tell us? It tells us that there's only one God and he is so powerful That even if the kings are partially divine, even if they are sons of gods, even if it's true that they are more than just human, they are the products of rebel beings who God wipes out with a snap of his finger according to his will. And so Moses is saying in this story, even if you somehow managed to become a mighty man of renown by intermixing with the divine, even if you achieve the highest possible form of superhuman strength, even if you evolve higher than humanity could ever imagine, it still wouldn't matter. You still need God. These incredible, mighty, superhuman people 
only accomplished leading the people to destruction. Look at, look at the rest of, of, of verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, right after he talks about the Nephilim being mighty men of renown, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So their divinity, their power, their renown, their their authority, it only led the people to further places of wickedness and self-worship. And so rather than letting mankind destroy itself by descending further and further into that wickedness, God hit the reset button. And he told them to look forward to the day when he would be the super soldier that would save them. So we have to ask the question to ourselves. Now is the the time that you, you have to allow the Lord to point to the places in your heart. What are you trying to save yourself with? What are you hoping to become? What, what are you hoping to achieve? What, what are you hoping to do or be that will achieve your salvation? Where does your hope lie? Is it being an, a, a good person? A productive member of society, a a good spouse, a a good parent? Is it creating something valuable enough to offer to the world? Is it in a life where you get to create your own meaning? Regardless of what it is, it is your vain attempt at being a super soldier strong enough to build your own gateway to God. And hear me, it will not work. You must do what the Nephilim were not willing to do. And that is to surrender to the real God or face the righteous judgment as your power is revealed to be of no consequence at all. And that, my friends, is why this is even in here. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you for this this series. God, thank you for the conviction of truth. Lord, I pray for for those who are here, for those who are watching right now online or, or listening to the podcast later on. Lord, I pray that right now your spirit would draw people to yourself. Anyone, Lord, who has never surrendered to you, anyone who's never laid down their own authority at your feet. Anyone who's never come to the place to say, I need you to rescue me. I cannot do this on my own. God, I pray that right now you would draw those people to you. God, for those of us who have at some point in our lives surrendered to you but are still holding things back, are still chasing things for satisfaction, are are still trying to find meaning in things that are lesser, Lord, I pray that you'd point those things out in our hearts and that we would submit those to you, that we'd surrender those things. Lord, thank you for being the God who loves us enough to rescue us, the God who loves us enough to become one of us to save us. Lord, be our hope, be our peace, be our salvation. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I invite you to stand as we sing our closing song. Um, And as a caveat, I will say this. I love the song that we're about to 